You are listening to the Mental Health Download by the nonprofit organization Mental Health Association Oklahoma. Hello and welcome. My name is Faraz Javed and I am one of the four Bank of America student leaders interning for the Mental Health Association this summer. Today, it is my privilege to be interviewing Greg Shin, Associate Director and Chief Housing Officer for the Association. Greg and I will be discussing the intersectionality of music and mental health. Before diving into today's topic, however, I would like to take a moment to let you all know about the Bank of America Student Leader Program. The program is among the many philanthropic initiatives launched by the bank that focuses on community betterment. For the past few years, the Nationwide Project has selected four high schoolers from Oklahoma City and Tulsa to serve the local community. This year, the Student Leader Program is focusing on civic engagement, mentorship, leadership skills, and financial know-how. The program is dedicated to connecting a diverse group of high school community trailblazers with early employment as the bank recognizes that early employment leads to future success in career and life. With that being said, I would now like to start the conversation. Hi, Greg. How are you today? Hello, Fraz. Thank you for having me, and I'm doing really well. My pleasure. Let's get started with a little background. Many people today know you as the housing and real estate expert that you are. However, not as many people know about your deep passion for music and analyzing social commentaries in music. Can you tell us about how you came to develop this passion? I was actually a musician in my first career. I was a guitarist and I studied music as a child and my parents encouraged me and paid for me to take guitar lessons at a local music store outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And from there, I got involved in the music programs at the high school that I went to. And after I graduated from there, I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts in the late 1970s. And all during that time, I was just that very next age bracket right after the Woodstock generation. People that traveled across the country to go to Woodstock, New York, to the music festival, kind of like culminated that generation and the music that was associated with the civil rights movement and the celebration of the freedom and expressions of being young and trying to change the things that didn't work in America for so many people, and we all are aware of the civil rights movement, <clears throat> what took place, and music to me, the music I grew up with, with was associated with that. And so when I studied music and went to Berkeley, that was how I approached it. I was very open and wanting to learn and absorb everything that I can uh, about music. And uh, music is an expression of who you are, where you are, the time that you live in, and the context that you live in. So for me, it was where I lived. It was what I thought about. It was what I did. And it was who I was. So can you also talk about how you went from studying music and being a musician to pivoting more towards the mental health side of things. There's a lot of literature out there about the brain development and the advantages of having children study music. 
it organizes your brain and your thinking and it's very structural and it's like it's like studying mathematics and parents are doing a very good thing by encouraging um, their children to learn music of course if you learn to read and write music then it's even more mathematical but regardless it's very much about brain development and really enhances your communication and critical thinking and so forth. Well, I just kind of had that as a context in the background. And of course, I learned how to read and write and arrange music and music theory while I was at Berkeley College of Music. But it was really later on in my career when I was a teacher and I taught music for so many years I had many students. Sometimes I had a couple dozen students a week and I would teach these young people, sometimes adults also, but they would come to me for their weekly music lessons and they weren't often very prepared or they didn't really study the material that they were supposed to be working on. And the reason that that was happening as I learned over time was that there were too many things happening in their personal life, too many things that looked like chaos in the household, dysfunctional families, and they were so distracted by what was going on in their daily lives that even though they were paying for guitar lessons, they didn't actually get to study the material. And so, as a music teacher, I would end up hearing about the family interactions, and I felt over time, I was not necessarily always equipped to deal with that. And I thought, well, and at the time, I was managing a music store in inner city Chicago on the south side, and I thought, maybe I should look at something like going to study music therapy how music can help people recover and, you know, help them develop and get better from whatever was ailing them. And I didn't, I didn't have a social work background at the time, but ultimately I decided uh, to change careers. Now I had gone from playing rock and roll to jazz, to studying classical music, and even went to the Cleveland Institute of Music and was playing classical guitar. And at the time, I had my whole repertoire of music and was performing publicly and had all these students, but this draw to the social activism from my childhood and what I thought needed to change as well as my interactions with my students led me to apply to social work school at New York University. And I was accepted and when I went there, it was really life-changing. I had great professors. They were very clinical. They were very psychoanalytic. And they started talking not about social change and revolution, which I thought that's what we need in, in this country. And that's what I could do as a social worker. And I could understand people better, but they started to talk about brain function and how you relate to people and how you use empathy and how you listen to people and reflect back to them. And so from that time, I took my music background and my training 
and my listening skills in music and transferred that over to learning clinical social work and psychology. And I kind of started to combine the two of them. Well, that's a very interesting mesh that you found where you were able to you know, see a need in the people that came to your shop. And from that, you developed an interest in mental health. And something you mentioned was music therapy that you initially delved into. Could you sort of talk a little bit more about what exactly you studied in this music therapy? Well, I didn't study music therapy, Fraz. That was one idea that I became interested in as I looked at what might I do to continue and finish uh, my higher education. But I decided to pivot to social work because I thought the whole idea was this social activism, civil rights, and the social change movement that I so identified with coming out of the 60s. And it still had a major influence on my life. What did the leaders in this country, what were they doing? Who did they represent? What ideals did they represent? And I felt like a lot of change was needed in this country. And I felt like social work was the avenue that I would go down. So I went to New York University. I first got my bachelor's in social work. And I did internships in the state psychiatric hospital system. I also did internships with homebound Holocaust survivors that were living in the projects in South Brooklyn and worked in a homeless shelter in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and was a liaison between the state psychiatric hospital and the homeless shelter. So as I did that, I continued to see that there were people that were disenfranchised and disconnected from the majority of what was happening in the community. And these people had serious mental illnesses and they had long periods of homelessness. And I began to try to get them and advocate for them to be able to receive services from the state hospital system. And that turned out to be a very difficult thing to do. And the system did not work to the advantage of these people that were homeless. And that's when I began to fight against the system, try to change the system to help these people get services. So it was kind of a long road um, to understanding how I applied my um, social work education ultimately to working with homeless populations. So while you were initially working as a social worker, were there any ways in which you attempted to sort of incorporate music with the mental health treatment process? Yes, I did actually. So in the state psychiatric hospital, they asked me to lead a music therapy group. And so I would bring my guitar and all of the hospital patients would come into the day treatment uh, room and I would play popular songs like Imagine by John Lennon and you know, other, other really popular songs of the day and everybody would sing and they would play other instruments and it would be a very social activity which would also help the patients communicate with each other. Some of these patients had been in the hospital for a very long time in the state hospital and they were extremely ill. Some of them had a lot of actively psychotic symptoms some of them were nonverbal. 
they had different diagnoses like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and major depression. And we found that the music helped them kind of come out of their shell sometimes and enjoy and be happy and find a little bit of joy in their daily life and their activities. So yes, it was limited, but it was found to be an asset that I had this background in music. So essentially it was sort of like a medium for people to begin to be social again, is what you're saying. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, some people would sit in the, in the day hospital and not say a word to anybody all day. They wouldn't communicate. They were nonverbal. And everything that they were dealing with was what was happening as a part of their psychosis and the internal stimulation that they were dealing with. But then sometimes people respond to music and that helps them open up and helps them, like I said, have a little bit of fun for a, for a short period of time. And when you get everybody together in a group and they're doing something together, then you have the social interaction of the group activity. So it was all very beneficial to the patients that were in the hospital. Well, honestly, that's quite amazing. I really didn't anticipate that music would have such a big impact on getting people really out of their shells, especially considering all the past dealings that people would have had to go through at that stage. That's a good point. I would like to say that the patients in the hospital had experienced a lot of trauma. Their past experiences led them to where they were, and they had a lot of issues to deal with. That was just a short once or twice a week group to have music therapy, but they also had their therapist, their primary therapy and other group therapy sessions. So there were many treatment modalities. The music was just a small part of it. I see. So sort of pivoting away from what we were talking about, I sort of wanted to move on to another topic. And I am aware that you once gave a presentation on the intersectionality of musical themes and sort of the housing first model that we here at the association support. Could you sort of talk about that presentation you gave and what it was about and what the message was that you were trying to put forward? Sure. So as my career advanced, I started as a street outreach worker. Then I became the director of a homeless shelter on Wall Street in New York City. And during that time, I met a man who became one of my mentors and one of the industry experts in the fields of homelessness and mental health, Dr. Sam Simbaris. And he started a model to help house homeless people that had serious mental illnesses, and that was called Housing First. And so Housing First was really a revolution in the social sciences. It was a revolutionary approach to helping people get back into the housing market and becoming people that had a high quality of life living alongside everybody else instead of being stuck, trapped as a homeless person living on the streets, in encampments, or in and out of the shelters with their disabling conditions. And essentially, what Sam said with Housing First was, just put people in the housing first, right now, no preconditions. Just put them in the housing right now, today, if you can, or get them the next available unit. And then once somebody's in the housing, we can wrap services around them. We can ask them, what do you need to advance your recovery, to facilitate your recovery? Do you need treatment? Do you need a job? Do you need to see the doctor? Do you need to make money? What is it that you need to do? But all of those things can be addressed 
after someone is in housing. It's very hard to address all those things while somebody's living unsheltered. So that was very revolutionary. And the presentation that you're asking about, I titled, So You Say You Want a Revolution. And it was called Paradigm Shift in the Arts and in the Social Sciences. So I invited Sam and a few other colleagues of mine, and we had a panel presentation. And what I did was I played changes in the musical language over time and made the analogy that that was very similar to the paradigm shift of having people who were homeless access housing through the housing first model. And the best way I can explain that is that my background was in jazz and classical music. And I could look at the changes in the language of jazz over time from the 40s and 50s. I kind of started with Charlie Parker and Bebop and Thelonious Monk and then John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Ornette Coleman. And some of these artists in the beginning, they stuck to the traditional style of writing music. They had a theme or a motif and a melody. Then they improvised. Then they came back to the main chorus and finished on the main melody. But later on, John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Ornette Coleman, they started to throw out all the rules and they started to play music that had no structure, no melody, no framework. They just created music. And I played the examples of that music for the audience. And I said to Sambaris, I said, Sam, that's what you did with Housing First. You threw away all the rules. You didn't make people get sober. You didn't make them get into treatment. You just gave them the housing first. And that was revolutionary. And so it really facilitated a conversation about how there were parallel movements happening. There was revolution happening in the arts and there was revolution happening in the social sciences. So with these sort of not necessarily simultaneous events that happened, but relatively close to each other in terms of time scale events that did occur. Do you think that this is sort of indicative of a larger movement that's taking place within America? Yes, I do. And it's still continuing from the civil rights movement and from the disadvantageous position that primarily people of color start from. It's not just about people of color. It's about people in poverty in general, but it's much more difficult for people of color to move up on the economic ladder in this country. Or if someone is homeless and disabled, you take a look at the ethnic background and the racial demographics, you will see people of color are dramatically overrepresented in the homeless population as well as in the rates of incarceration across the country. So it's this very disadvantageous position that the civil rights movement was trying to address. We are still doing it today. We are still addressing systemic racism and trying to move towards a more equitable system that reflects the values that this country was built on. And what it says in our constitution is that everybody should be treated equally, all men are created equal. The freedoms that we have are applied to everybody in this country. So yes, I do believe that we are still in the midst 
of that battle. And we're in the midst of advancing equity. And in my career here at the Mental Health Association, I'm trying to do that through policy change and making sure that we have access to affordable housing. When I think of the civil rights movement and when, when we consider sort of the cultural backlash that occurred at the time, I'm reminded of the Black Panther Party and the death of Fred Hampton and the very social stigma that was attached to that group. And I was wondering if you see any kind of parallel to the housing first model in that regards where people are resistant to this kind of change or this kind of notion that people, that housing is essentially a human right and that people need housing first before they can get treatment. That's exactly right. And the Black Panthers and other subgroups that were part of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King being the most famous, Malcolm X, some others that were gigantic icons of magnets for and, and had amazing leadership for millions of people. But there were these other subgroups that were associated with the civil rights movement who were, we want change and we want it now. And we're not waiting. And we're not waiting for you to tell us what we can get. We're going to take it. So there was that element of it. And some of it did result in maybe stigmatizing, but I do believe that the anger in that voice that they have, we're still hearing that today with Black Lives Matter and other kinds of movements that are still taking place today. People are out there saying, this is decades later, that was 40 years ago. Decades later, we're still saying, it's still not equal. You're still treating people of color differently. Okay, and so we're demanding change now. The difference is you see people of all colors marching in these Black Lives Matter rallies. Everybody is agreeing we've got to change the system. And the people in Washington, D.C., our elected officials in every state, they need to be listening to what the people are saying. And so we're still in that social civil rights movement, the culture where it's enveloping us even today. I was wanting to know, like, more specifically, if you felt any sort of backlash against this whole housing first model. There actually is um, some backlash to it at times as we try to advance access to and development of affordable housing. There's sometimes pushback, which is often called NIMBY, not in my backyard. There are some people who don't want those people or people of low income or people of color or people that have experienced homelessness, they don't want those people living in their neighborhood or they don't want housing being built for that population in their neighborhood or near their schools or whatever. So there's a lot of stigma and a lot of community education that needs to go on is that people that have experienced homelessness and people that have a mental illness are just like everyone else. They just need a way to get back into the housing market and to reach self-sufficiency. And we're not building institutions, we're building affordable housing. So sometimes we have to overcome that type of an idea with a lot of community education and outreach. So pivoting away from what we were just talking about, sort of moving into another direction, back into sort of the musical element that we're talking about, I know that you're very interested in, of course, jazz and music of the 60s, 80s, around that time. But I also know that you're very interested in rappers nowadays, like Kendrick Lamar and Jay-Z 
And I was just wanting to know if you could let us know what some of your favorite rappers are. Yeah, I can do that. Let me just say first that I see what these really tremendously gifted artists of today, when you look at who I think are the best rappers and hip hop artists, I see them on a continuum from the jazz artists that I was discussing before. They are amazing improvisers. They can freestyle. Jay-Z doesn't even write down his lyrics. And they surround themselves with amazing musicians of the highest caliber and the production team in the studio. And so if you take a look at John Coltrane and some of these other artists that were huge voices, these rappers and hip-hop artists are doing the same thing today. It's an extension of what was being expressed. And, and, and if you take a look at what they were trying to say in the civil rights movement and the jazz that was happening at the time, the hip hop guys of today are trying to say the same thing. And my main point here also is not just to tell you who my favorite artists are, but it's this, we need to listen to what they have to say. You can only understand what they're talking about if you learn the language, just like learning musical scales and harmony when you learn music, to understand what Jay-Z and Kendrick and J. Cole and some of these other artists are talking about, you really need to delve into the language and dissect it and understand the codes that they use at times so that you get the message that's really important. And I will also say for social workers, for clinicians who are out there that might be listening, it's the same thing when you're working with your client. You need to be able to listen and interpret what they're talking about. So if you don't understand what these younger people are talking about today in hip hop, how are you gonna understand and relate to the things that are frustrating your clients, especially if they're of the same generation and they're people of color? We have to understand the important message that is being communicated out there by some of the top rap artists today. And so they are innovating and they are extremely talented and gifted. They're genius and they have a lot to say and it's culturally relevant. It's relevant to the work that we're doing today here at the Mental Health Association. And it's a very powerful voice. And I really would like to use as an older white male it's been very illuminating to me. I have learned so much and have delved into it and have learned what it is that they're trying to talk about and what they're trying to say. And I will tell you, they have a right to be upset. They have important things to share and people need to be listening to what they're talking about because we still don't have equity. And in the end, I don't think they wanna wait for white America to join their movement. They're going to do it their own way right now. And they've created their own language and their own way of communicating and they're reinterpreting who they are. And they're saying, we are royalty. We have a legacy. You listen to Kendrick Lamar. We have within ourselves, all the gifts and all the talent. If you listen to Jay-Z and he says, kill Jay-Z, he wants to kill the old self because he's reinventing the new self, a new and better self. And he wants everybody to hear about it. And if you listen to the messages of what Kendrick is saying in tracks like DNA, we got royalty, we got royalty in our DNA. And they're taking their own identity and claiming it. And there's power in that. And I love that. I appreciate it. 
and I can listen to it over and over and I just applaud all of this music and I think it's amazing and I really hope that more people will take the time to listen and understand. Thank you, Greg, for answering some questions and what has been a very interesting and informational podcast. As we close, I would like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in and hopefully learning something new about music and the articulation of ideas, mental health, and the need for housing. I hope everyone here has a great day.